Welcome to Heart Matters, a show about all aspects of heart health, brought to you in partnership with the Providence Heart Institute and Boston Scientific. The Providence Heart Institute is a leading integrated network of cardiovascular care with a focus on putting our patients at the heart of everything we do. And we are committed to making a positive difference in every life we touch. As part of that commitment, we are bringing the doctors to you. Hello, I'm your host today, Judy Dusick, the Executive Director of the Providence Heart Institute. Joining me on this episode are Dr. Shafel Doshi and Dr. Stephen Compton, both electrocardiophysiologists um, with Providence. Uh, Dr. Doshi comes to us from California and Dr. Compton comes to us from Alaska. We are discussing atrial fibrillation. What is it? What do we? What should we be aware of? And what are the treatments we have for it? So it's going to get pretty deep, but I think that this is actually a top of mind diagnosis um, these days. So we're going to get into that. Um, good morning, Dr. Compton and Dr. Doshi. How are you? Good morning. Thanks for yeah. having us. Good morning. I think we're a little warmer than the guys up in Alaska. So, down here, <laughs> I think so. Um, before we get started today, I would really uh, love to hear a little bit about you um, and the communities you serve, since you come from two really unique areas. Um, Dr. Compton, we'll start with you, since you're all the way up in Alaska. Uh, so I'm the uh, I, I'm in the Alaska Heart and Vascular Institute uh, in Anchorage. Uh, we are a fairly large group, uh, 30 physicians and another uh, 28 mid-level providers uh, uh, on four campuses in South Central Alaska. Uh, and uh, uh, that includes uh, four electrophysiologists. Uh, and uh, we, we provide, our group provides the electrophysiology services for, for the entire state, which is uh, fun and interesting. And, Kind of challenging, and so uh, we we get phone calls uh, and texts uh, all day long from emergency rooms all, all around the state, and you really feel like you have your uh, finger on the pulse of what's happening with uh, the arrhythmia situation. Um, and uh, like uh, uh, everywhere else in the country, uh, we see a lot of atrial fibrillation um, and deal with. Uh, the other fast and slow rhythms uh, that come along. Awesome. Yeah, I um, having been a resident in Alaska, I, I hear you on the uniqueness there. So I'd love to get into that um, during our discussion and how we manage those those patients um, in those rural areas. Um, Dr. Doshi, uh, you come to us from California. So it, it tell us a little bit about yourself and, and the community you serve. Yeah, so we are at uh, uh, Providence St. John's Health Center in Santa Monica. Uh, so those are familiar with Santa Monica, not too far from the airport, a beach community. Um, we are, are a group of 18 cardiologists at the Pacific Heart Institute, of which we also have four electrophysiologists. Thankfully, we do not provide all the EP services for the state of California like Steve does for Alaska. But, you know, as Steve mentioned, as the population gets older, we start seeing more and more uh, arrhythmias or, or electrical short circuits of the heart especially atrial fibrillation. The incidence is estimated to be one out of 10 in patients over the age of 70. Mm. Now that we have a lot more awareness, a lot more consumer items like Apple watches and things, you know, we are discussing arrhythmias and AFib 
so much more. And I think it's important for people to understand that we're talking about electrical problems with the heart, not plumbing problems, not other things. Because when people think of heart disease, they always think of a heart attack. Mm -hmm. And we always try to, to explain to them that there's a lot more to the heart than just plumbing. There's a lot of electricity. And that's where folks like Steve and myself specialize in uh, is managing the electrical disorders of the heart. Yeah, we're going to um, get into all of that. And I would like to unpack this. So let's start with the basics um, about AFib. So can you, you, you touch on it. It's, a, it's, a, it's an electrical issue in the heart. And I like, I love the, you know, the metaphor of the plumbing versus the electrical part of it. So um, Dr. Compton, we'll start with you. Tell us um, just sort of what is specifically, what is atrial fibrillation? Well, the normal uh, motion of the heart is that uh, the the top chambers, the atria, will fire and then contract, and they push blood to the bottom of the heart. And then uh, the same electrical signal travels to the bottom of the heart, uh, which contracts and pushes blood out of the heart. And so that top-bottom electrical movement is uh, very critical for the most efficient uh, function uh, of the heart. And any change from that uh, electrical pattern will likely reduce the uh, efficiency of the heart, reduce the cardiac output. Mm -hmm. uh, atrial fibrillation uh, is by far the most common human arrhythmia, and it is related to chaotic firing in the top of the heart. And we'll, we'll talk about where that comes from. But once you're in it, uh, electrical impulses are whipping around inside the top of the heart. Uh, and overall, you'll have an atrial heart rate of over 400 beats per minute. And the atrium, uh, it, it, during surgery, you can actually see this and you can just watch the atrium and it, it, it quivers. It doesn't really contract very efficiently. And then, um, so you, you lose the uh, pumping effect of the atrium. And then there's irregular conduction of electrical signals to the bottom of the heart. And the irregularity in the bottom of the heart is also a problem because the heart needs to fill a certain amount of time before it contracts. And so often uh, you'll have early contraction that doesn't really accomplish much. And so uh, that rhythm, that irregular uh, activation of the heart uh, results in reduced cardiac output. So you just don't have the same horsepower. Right. And often people feel tired. And uh, Alaska is kind of a fish-friendly state. A, a common story I hear is it feels like a fish flopping around in my chest. <laughs> That's a good example. I mean, and, and this is this is important to have. I love what you said, the horsepower to pump the blood out and to our body to the essential organs. And so, if that's not working right, then it's 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 bad over time, right? If our heart stays in that that rhythm, that's not supposed to be in that rhythm. Well, well, that's correct. And so, the, there are a, a number of consequences. Uh, number one, symptoms: uh, fatigue, shortness of breath, lightheadedness. Uh, and, and just a drop in stamina, uh, and that's the horsepower problem. Mm -hmm. uh, number two, we, we worry about the potential for uh, uh, stroke. And so the, uh, that, that chaotic firing in the atrium uh, results in uh, uh, stasis of blood, and there's a bit more to it than that, but, but there's a chance of clots forming in the top of the heart. And a clot that washes out and goes to your spleen, you'll never really know or care probably, but the same clot washing up into your, into your brain can cause a, uh, a significant stroke. And, and the strokes associated with AFib 
are more likely to disable or kill you than non-AFib related strokes. They're very important to prevent. The, the third issue is that uh, a minority of patients will develop persistent AFib without noticing it, and uh, uh, which in a way is kind of helpful. It's, they're not so bothered by the rhythm, but over time it can cause a cardiomyopathy where it weakens the heart and that can be a life-threatening problem. So that's the second way that uh, this rhythm uh, can cause early death. Yeah. And then, uh, and then in the long run, uh, this rhythm is associated with an increased risk of dementia. Yeah. Thank you, Dr. Compton. Um, Dr. Doshi, um, how how do you talk to your patients about this? They come in. What? To, how do you explain atrial fibrillation to them? Well, you know, I, I kind of explain it uh, uh, in a similar way in that. You know, the human heart beats 100,000 times a day on average, okay? So our heart is doing this regular motion every single day, every single second, and we're not aware of it, and we shouldn't be aware of it or it will drive us nuts, right? Mm -hmm. and, and I always say it's kind of analogous to when you come down the stairs and you see that light bulb in the kitchen flickering. You know, randomly one day you'll be coming down and you've had those light bulbs in your house your whole life, the fluorescent light bulbs, and one day it starts flickering. That's kind of what happens in atrial fib. Your upper chamber starts having a mini short circuit and it starts flickering. And what happens to you the first time you see it? Usually the first time you see the light bulb flickering is not the first time it happened. You just happen to be down the stairs and you saw it. And in the beginning, the episodes don't last very long, right? It flickers for a few seconds. Now, if it was up to my wife, she'd have me go to the hardware store to go get a new light bulb. But me being a man, I'm gonna say, you know what? Let's just see how bad it gets. Let's, let's wait, you know, I don't wanna go right now. And well, we know what happens over time with that light bulb flickering, like atrial fib, the episodes of flickering get longer they become more frequent until that bulb is flickering all the time. And that's what happens with AFib. It's a progressive disorder. So from the time that you diagnose it, in general, most people over time, the episodes will get longer, they'll get more frequent until they're stuck in it all the time. Now that could take years to happen or it could happen very quickly. And, and the challenge for us is that a lot of patients who have atrial fibrillation aren't aware of it. And why is that a big problem? Well, the reason that's a big problem is that AFib increases, like, like Steve said, increases the risk of stroke five times that of what it would normally be in, in most people. And so you have someone that has no awareness that they're a ticking time bomb. Their heart is out of rhythm. You know, almost one or two out of three people don't often feel it to the extent that they even think about seeing somebody. And the first symptom they get is a stroke. And so it's important for us as part of this podcast to to educate people about some of the risks. There's obviously there's the, I don't feel good. That makes it easy because then you want to go see your doctor. You right. feel short of breath, you feel fluttering, you feel dizzy. But those people that don't feel it, um, those are the ones that we really need to kind of address also. And so it's, I think it's important. The most important thing about AFib is protecting someone from stroke. The right. second most important thing is making you feel better if you don't feel good. And those are the two things. So when a patient comes to us with AFib, I scare them a little bit and let them know. I said, listen, don't take this lightly because it's all fun and games until you have a stroke. And the number one thing is at least let's get you protected. We'll figure out what to do, whether we need to fix it, whether you stay with it. You know, but important thing is we, we, we look at the different options we have for protecting you from stroke. Right. So what are um, what do you see in terms of so, so a patient comes in that, that one symptom is my rhythm, my heart is like doing something, it's fluttering, but what are some of the other, what we call comorbidities or other diagnoses that you typically see in patients that do have AFib, you know, uh, that are contributing factors to that? Because I, I hear that AFib 
when you get to that point and you're actually feeling it, that's that's a red flag, but it's probably a red flag that maybe should have happened years ago. But what are some of the other comorbidities um, yeah. that you I mean, see? Th- that's an important question, especially when you think about a half, half of the people don't even feel anything, right? And yeah. then the other thing is a lot of these patients are older. They're in their 70s, 80s, and 90s, and their symptom is fatigue. So when mm-hmm. you have a 92-year-old patient coming to you and, and grandma's, you know, I'm just tired. I'm like, well, you're 92. Is it because you're 92 or is it, you know, you, you don't. And so you, we're not thinking about it all the time, but fatigue is often a common symptom that people have that can get just kind of passed on because I'm just older, mm-hmm. you know. But when something happens very suddenly where you're like, I felt okay last month, but this month I'm suddenly much different. I have less energy. I, I can't breathe as well. These are kind of some red flags versus, oh, every year over the past 20 years, I'm gradually just declining because I'm getting older. Uh, And one of the common uh, diagnoses that people who have atrial fibrillation have is high blood pressure. Mm -hmm. High blood pressure increases one's risk. Aging increases the risk. One of the most undiagnosed disorders that comes with AFib is called sleep apnea. Uh, Mm -hmm. And a lot of patients, you know, they snore, they they stop breathing at night, and that also increases the risk for AFib. So as we see our population getting more obese, as we see our population having more issues with, with diabetes, high blood pressure, all of these things, which some of these are can be treatable, increase your risk of AFib. And then there's aging, which we can't stop. Right. right? So, so as my mother says, Steve and I have good job security because as the population gets older, you know, the, the incidence of AFib is skyrocketing. It's estimated five to 10 million people in the U.S. have this problem right. as we talk about today. So, so now I'm going to make, we're going to make this a little more complicated, but the heart is complicated. So I, it's, it also seems that there's different, uh, there are different types of AFib. So um, Dr. Compton, I'll start with you. Talk, uh, can you talk to us a little bit about um, the different types of AFib that somebody can get? Oh, you bet. Well, once you're in atrial fibrillation, it's fibrillating, but there are different time patterns of, of arrhythmia. And uh, when, when I was a uh, fellow, there was this idea, well, we've got uh, the three Ps, paroxysmal AFib, persistent AFib, and permanent AFib. And the idea was that, well, paroxysmal comes and goes on its own. Uh, persistent is a, a form of AFib that persists unless there's an uh, intervention, usually medication plus or minus cardioversion. And then, then there was this idea at the time that, well, there's permanent AFib that we just can't get uh, turned around, where we'll, we'll, we'll do a cardioversion and the patient goes right back into AFib. And, uh, well, gee, in the mid to late 90s, uh, we started studying the, the permanent AFib people and, and discovering that uh, we could actually uh, use that problem to map out where AFib comes from. And... Uh, uh, it turns out permanent is not as permanent as it used to be. So, uh, uh, so the the current classification um, would be uh, paroxysmal and persistent. And then, if you have atrial fibrillation that's persisted for over a year, that's called long-standing persistent atrial fibrillation. But uh, and, and as you might guess, the uh, the longer you've been in atrial fibrillation through that progression, uh, the more challenging it becomes to treat. Um, but uh, the general story with atrial fibrillation is most people start with brief episodes with this paroxysmal atrial fibrillation. It may not even be full-on AFib. It may be bursts of a, a slower rhythm in atrial tachycardia. But over time, these episodes become more frequent, and uh, they last longer and longer. 
and eventually uh, uh, you can go into atrial fibrillation and, and just lock into it and stay in it all the time. And there are uh, structural and electrical changes that occur in the atrium um, that are in part caused by the arrhythmia itself. And so the, uh, the shorthand for all that progressive physiology is that atrial fibrillation begets atrial fibrillation. Mm -hmm. Dr. Doshi, I'll, I'll kind of toss that question to you as well. Um, as you're, you know, talking to your patients and, and definitely diagnosing, I, cardioversions are interesting. Um, I, I actually want you to kind of describe this procedure a little bit, because we're going to get into uh, some of the treatments, but, um, you know, some people have described it as, as like, it's almost like jumping a car battery to get it back into rhythm. Yeah. Um, can you talk to us a little bit about- well, let's, let's talk about that, because I think there's a lot of misconception about some of the treatments we have for AFib. Yeah. And I think if you go back to my analogy of that fluorescent light bulb flickering in the kitchen, Mm -hmm. There's some things you do that'll just reset the light bulb. Okay. Right. So for example, you know, as Steve talks about the, the, you know, whether you're an AFib, just some of the time paroxysmal, you're stuck in it, you're persistent, or you're always in it permanent. It's like that light bulb short circuiting again, when that light bulb is short circuiting and you turn the lights off and on, all you've done is reset the light. Sometimes you'll mm -hmm. do that and the light bulb will stop flickering. Now, have you fixed the light bulb? No. Mm -hmm. Could it flicker again? It could flicker five minutes later. It could flicker five years later. And so that's all a cardioversion is. We're just resetting the heart. We haven't actually fixed the light bulbs, okay? But So where is that valuable? Well, I think it can be helpful in some people who really feel bad, who say, boy, I just, my heart's going nuts. It just has been in it for two days. I can't breathe. You're like, okay, well, let's just reset your heart, get it back to normal so you at least feel better, and we'll see how long it lasts. If it lasts six a, a year, that's great. We, we, we went along a whole year. And you felt, okay, we didn't have to do anything more. Right. If it lasts for two days, then, hey, you know, at least we know we got to do something more if you feel bad. Also, it can be helpful when we don't know if someone is feeling bad because of their AFib. You know, I'm 80 years old and I'm tired. Well, I'm going to reset your heart. It's not a permanent fix. It's a reset. And for as long as you stay normal, if you stay normal for a couple of days and you say, you know, those three days, I felt a lot better. Mm -hmm. Then we say, okay. Now we maybe we should do something to try to fix it. So cardioversion, essentially, while, you know, when you look on TV, it looks like paddles to the chest and you're jumping, you know, your body moves. All we're really doing is just re resetting the heart to normal and hope it at least stays for some period so we can understand whether we need to do more if you feel better, et cetera. But it's right. not actually fixing the problem. Right. No, I think that is super important to call out because this is where we sort of get into um, – so utilization of resources and care. And, and a lot of times we have AFib patients that routinely go to the ED because all of a sudden they've waited too long. Maybe that, that fix isn't fixed anymore. They come to the ED and sort of that, it's sort of that vicious cycle of getting in there. Okay. They made, they made me feel better for a minute, but the important message there is just, then you need to follow up with your doctor, right? You need to go, go back to your primary care. If you haven't been there, that way they can get you into a cardiologist or into the um, electrophysiologist to, to permanently address this. So I think, like, yeah, what are your thoughts what on Steve that? Said, sorry to interrupt you. I think what Steve said is very important is that, you know, there's been a big push now based on a lot of data that early treatment of AFib affects outcome. Yes. Okay. And so what used to happen before is you have AFib, you see your primary care doctor who then tries to manage it, then three months later sends to the cardiologist, who then three months later sends to the electrical specialist like Steve and I. The push now is when you have AFib, you know, you go straight to the electrical specialist. Let us at least figure out a game plan right. of what needs to be done. What you don't want to do 
is sit stuck in AFib for a year and then come to us and saying, okay, now fix me. Right. Okay. Right. So, so exactly. So the point is get seen early, see the electrical specialist early. And, and that's why a cardioversion can be helpful. So it keeps you out of the arrhythmia until we can fix it so that it becomes easier to fix. Right. So, okay. So I, I, we talk, we're talking about, um, patients that are sort of in our higher age bracket, but if we're trying to get um, more ahead and uh, more upstream in our population, it, it, it may also be in, in, in groups that aren't as old, right? And so it's um, <clears throat> being in tune to that, um, getting into the doctor, typically when you're a little younger, you're like, I can't have that disease. It is, I, there's no way I could have that kind of heart, heart issue. So what, how would you encourage then um, sort of different age groups to be more in tune with this particular diagnosis so that we can get more upstream and not wait until um, we're 70 or 80 years old? Well, you know, you know I, I think the younger age population in some ways is usually more symptomatic. So, yeah. so we at least can diagnose it. But yeah, no question. I mean, the people that get the best bang for their buck and the best outcomes and the best success rates are the younger people. So, if the, you know, when you have AFib and you're 50 or you're 40, uh, those are the patients that will do really, really well with the therapies we have. Uh, and so, you know, it's important they see their physician and, and, and they'll get referred to get seen. But the way you prevent AFib is a whole other topic. That's do everything you can to reduce your risk of high blood pressure, to keep your weight down, to prevent sleep apnea, to not have diabetes, to be healthy. But once you have it, whether you're 40, 50, 60, 70, 80, early treatment trumps everything else. Dr. Compton, what, how are you addressing this with your younger patients as they're coming in to you? Uh, well, a couple thoughts. Uh, we, we have kind of a direct pipeline from the emergency rooms around the state. And so uh, we have a phone number to the uh, uh that the ER docs use that will get them directly through to the on-call electrophysiologist. Uh, and then, um, uh, so we'll help them uh, deal with an, an acute episode of AFib, and then we arrange direct follow-up in the uh, arrhythmia clinic, uh, rather than wandering through uh, a long sequence of uh, referring docs. Mm -hmm. And and so the, the goal, of course, is to uh, um, expedite care and uh, the the younger the patient uh, with atrial fibrillation uh, the the more they have to gain from um, uh, treatment and so when I was uh, in training atrial fibrillation was an incurable mystery hmm. we uh, uh, we had these terrible drugs uh, that could cause sudden death that uh, didn't work very often uh, lots of uh, medications and cardioversion there, there was one medication, Procainamide that uh, you had to take every four hours, uh, wow. and a real, real challenge uh, to adhere to a medication like that. That was in the and, 1800s when Steve was training. <laughs> <to be honest. laughs> and so, yeah, yeah, we uh, people would show up uh, and, and their horse-drawn carriages. Uh, yeah. <laughs> to, uh, so, so the, uh, uh, and then as we learned. Uh, uh, to map and ablate atrial fibrillation uh, uh, in the late 90s, it became apparent that, gee, there, there's tissue in the uh, pulmonary veins that it seems to fire and trigger atrial fibrillation. And perhaps we there's an opportunity for 
intervention here. And mm -hmm. the initial ablation, uh, it was a procedure where we had try and isolate a single pulmonary vein and and uh, see if we'd get the AFib to go away. And and the success rate with that procedure at one year was only 40%, which sounds terrible, but that's comparable to what we've ever done with drug therapy. Right. So right off the bat, we had a therapy that uh, was uh, competing with our, our best medical uh, management. And and over the years, the uh, success rate for ablation has, uh, has really shot up and uh, uh, has become a safer and, and quicker and, and an outpatient procedure. And so the overall trend for management has been to move from these uh, uh, medications that can potentially cause side effects and, and sudden death and don't have a great long-term success rate uh, to invasive management um, with uh, uh, destruction of the tissues in the atrium that uh, that misfire and trigger a atrial fibrillation. Yeah. So um, what? So it seems so heart disease is there's equal opportunity now these days between men and women. Um, heart disease used to strictly be sort of a, a, a man's disease, but now. Uh, we we know with data and um, we're more aware that, you know, this this affects men and women. Um, but talk to us a little bit about, um, Dr. D we'll start with you, Dr. Doshi. Are men and women equally at risk for AFib? Yeah, I, I mean, there's no doubt that, that in general, the risks are going to be there for both uh, sexes, male or female. And traditionally, women have just been underdiagnosed. They haven't represented... Uh, a lot of the patients that we've seen in the clinical trials, because we just haven't been great about enrolling women, uh, but we know that 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 AFib is is relevant for men and women, and um, some would argue that that uh, women can even do worse than men with the diagnosis of AFib. And is that because women are 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 stronger than men? Men complain, you know, when they have the slightest headache, and women just tough it out and don't go see their doctor. I mean, there's a lot of potential reasons why that can be, but I, I don't think that we need to discriminate uh, either one. I think that the risks are serious enough for, for both. Mm -hmm. uh, and the symptoms aren't always the same for men and women, but but clearly there are symptoms. And I think it's important to tease that out. And, you know, in the United States, the average patient, when they have a cardiologist, sees that cardiologist once a year for seven minutes. Okay, so when you think about the, 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 the lack of time spent on average with a patient with their cardiologist, uh, you can see how this can get missed you know, or when patients aren't referred. So I think it's important to raise awareness and go directly to the patient. You know, that if you don't feel right, if you're feeling some of these symptoms, which some may be vague, some maybe not, and definitely if you're in the age group with many of those risk factors, it's important to get seen and get checked out, even with your primary who can pick up some of these things. And if you do, then, you know, get referred to the electrical specialist. But I think whether you're male, whether you're female, I think the risk is, is severe enough uh, uh, but, you know, being aware that the symptoms may not be the same. Right. So um, another question is, how, could can kids have AFib? Uh, yeah. I mean, look, atrial fibrillation generally is noted with older people. I mean, when you say kids, there are some, we see young patients, sometimes 16, 17, 18 adult size that, that get AFib, but it's usually a little different. They have a focus that starts firing and really rapidly short-circuiting the heart. It's not the same mechanism, but it's much less common. It's, it's yeah. not a very common thing to see in, in, in younger kids, especially, you know, we believe there's a theory. You need a certain amount of atrial tissue to cause atrial fib. 
-hmm. So if you take a rat or a mouse in the, in the lab, it's hard to make them have AFib. But elephants and horses have AFib much more frequently because they just have more atrial tissue. And so that's why it's, it's also less common to see children. Right. Um, what are, so you talked, we talked a little bit about, and y'all both touched on this. So strategies to prevent AFib. And it just sounds like um, overall reducing our risk for heart disease in general. So those numbers, right? Knowing your blood pressure, knowing your cholesterol, getting those regular checkups, um, you know, diet and exercise, I'm sure, sleep, we, you know, um, lowering stress levels. Um, are these common strategies, would you, would you say, Dr. Compton, um, that would also lower your risk uh, for AFib? There, there's actually been some exciting work out of, um, uh, of Australia uh, looking at lifestyle interventions for AFib uh, management. Uh, and uh, the studies generally involve uh, uh, more men than women, but uh, uh, looking at this question of whether uh, weight loss, exercise, abstention from alcohol, and treatment of sleep apnea, uh, uh, those interventions can make a meaningful difference. And uh, in the, the largest trial, uh, patients randomized between conventional management, uh, lifestyle intervention, or our most powerful antiarrhythmic, amiodarone. Um, it turned out that uh, the, the most powerful intervention was just a 10% weight loss, which was a more effective intervention than our best rhythm drug. Wow. And, um, and so that just knowing that can be a powerful motivator for people to uh, change lifestyle. We know <clears throat> diets aren't terribly effective for long-term weight loss. And so the, the strategies for long-term weight loss in uh, all involve, uh, <coughs> uh, uh, all, all involve uh, sustainable long-term changes in lifestyle, which usually means uh, the amount of exercise you do, but uh, changing the kinds of foods that you eat. Mm -hmm. So, so lifestyle intervention is is a huge thing for us, and and there's right. a, a growing appreciation. We've known for a long time that atrial fibrillation is often triggered by alcohol, uh, but there's a growing appreciation that alcohol use uh, increases atrial fibrosis, so scarring of the atrium, which in turn uh, is a setup for atrial fibrillation. So, lots of reasons to minimize alcohol use. Right. So lifestyle modifications um, typically don't seem to be as easy for some, I would say some ethnicities or even, you know, some communities. Uh, what, what do you find are sort of barriers to care to really have that effective lifestyle modification? Um, as we know, our environment also drives our risks for, um, for heart disease. So um, how, as you're trying, as you're on the front line battling this with your patients, how, how, what, what are you seeing from or hearing from your patients that are barriers to really making that lifestyle modification? And I'll start with Dr. Doshi on that one. Ah, I was hoping you were going to start with Dr. Compton on that. <laughs> well, you're um, in California, so I'm just saying. Yeah, no, I think, I think it really varies for, for regions. So, for example, we, we can talk about smoking. We didn't mention that, uh, you know, in, in general as, as how smoking contributes to heart disease. But like, for example, Santa Monica has some of the lowest smoking rates in the country, less than 2% of the people smoke. And so that's not a big factor for us to modify, for example. Um, and, and some of the things that, that Steve talked about, 
can be challenging based on your culture, based on your socioeconomic status? Do you have the luxury of going for a half an hour walk every day? Or are you working two jobs, supporting your kids? Can you afford certain types of food and to be cooking from home and looking at the glycemic index to kind of reduce your weight? Mm -hmm. uh, you know, I think we can do what we can with education. Um, we can do, uh, you know, a, a lot of advanced therapies like referring them to dietitians and people that actually specialize in that. So much of it comes from diet and weight, you know, blood pressure, all that stuff is related. But I think the key here is also not to wait for all of that to get better. Before in the old days with high blood pressure, we'd say, okay, you're going to lose 10 pounds. Come back to me in six months. Your blood pressure is 160. We'll see how it is. Six months later, it'll still be 160. And you do something else. And the next thing you know, for three years, you haven't controlled it. So the important thing is we do things in parallel at the same time. So while we're treating your AFib, while we're managing that, while we may be doing a procedure, at the same time, we're working on having you lose weight, having you exercise better, having you consume less stimulants, alcohol, et cetera. But, you know, I don't think there's a magic solution for this. It takes a lot of hard work uh, and it's hard for the patients. Um, it's easy for us to spend five minutes and tell them what to do. Right. And you look at doctors, we're often not the best example of doing the right things in our own bodies, you know? I mean, this is, it's a human factor here. And I think all we can do is, is, is spend the time with the patient and, you know, express our, the importance of these lifetime, lifestyle strategies when they can uh, do it. And then also refer them to other specialists that can focus on that. And whether it's, it's just, you know, reducing the amount of stress in your life, that's a huge factor that we don't talk about. You know, they've done studies where they've randomized patients who have AFib and, and half of the group did meditation, mindfulness, yoga, and the other half of the group led their normal life. And the group that had yoga had almost a 30 to 40% reduction in AFib, just as much as the drugs were doing. Wow. Who knows? So, so there's a lot of lifestyle impacts, you know, uh, as we in America are a society that lives to work because that's the way we do it, you know, all those things play a role. And there's no question stress has increased in our society in the last five years for a multitude of reasons. Um, also including the pandemic, we're seeing more and more arrhythmias. Right. And and we have more technology, it seems like that, that can help, um, you know, anybody really kind of stay in tune with their body, right? So we talked a little bit about the Apple Watch and we feel like, yes, there's more awareness around arrhythmias and AFib in particular. I had one um, one physician call it apolitis and, and sort of like feeling like, well, now everybody feels like, you know, they're not feeling well. But I think just in general, the general message is keep, stay in tune with your health, stay in tune with your body, listen to, listen to um, the signs and symptoms, especially if, you know, you have family history or you're at risk for these things. Um, and so I just, you know, to, to not you know, discourage people from going and, and even if they maybe aren't your typical, uh, you know, uh, demographic is just check, check in with your doctor, talk to them about these things, right? You can't read our minds and it's not like you're going to come and knock in on our door saying, Hey, how are you feeling today? We have to make the effort. So the patient is as much of a part of the care team as you are. Um, now you mentioned something that kind of triggered, you, you know, that, um, it's a multidisciplinary approach. So you, you're taking care of one part of this, right? The cardiologist is as well. Um, and then the primary care, you know, physicians are part of it, but there's other specialists. So like, talk to me a little bit about how you intersect with like neurology and bariatrics and, you know, um, some of the other, I guess, um, specialists that would sort of wrap around uh, nephrology around a patient like this. 
And it will start with that. That's yeah. for Dr. Compton. We'll go to Dr. Compton on that uh, one. Thank you, Dr. Joshi. I think uh, just just out of the shoot, uh, we, we have a very close relationship with our sleep medicine doctors. Um, mm -hmm. And uh, it, overall, about uh, half of the people with atrial fibrillation are going to have significant obstructive sleep apnea worth, worth treating. And for that matter, about half the sleep apnea world has... Uh, uh, sorry, has uh, atrial fibrillation. There's a big, big overlap on the old Venn diagram there. Yeah. And so uh, we're very interested in pursuing that because we know that uh, treating atrial fibrillation, um, it, it's hard to successfully treat that in the long run without uh, also addressing sleep apnea. Um, and so uh, uh, so that's an important relationship. We, we work quite a bit with our neurologists uh, uh, for example, uh, patients with unexplained stroke or TIA, uh, so they've had vascular events uh, or neurologic events that are likely to be vascular. Uh, uh, one concern is that perhaps there was a, a clot coming from the heart going to the brain that caused those uh, neurologic symptoms. And not everybody shows up with a smoking gun where they're in galloping atrial fibrillation and a new stroke. And uh, so one question is, gee, could, could this episode have been related to an undiagnosed atrial fibrillation problem? Mm -hmm. And uh, so uh, one strategy is to implant a, uh, a rhythm monitor and our, uh, that can follow the rhythm for, for years. And um, so our neurologists are, are typically sending uh, these unexplained stroke and TIA patients over uh, for consideration of of external or even internal monitoring devices. Uh, and, uh, and of course we work with them in the patients who've had strokes. Uh, bariatric is an issue. Uh, uh, it's, it's difficult in the long run to successfully manage atrial fibrillation if, if uh, you're carrying a, a, a large, large amount of extra weight. Um, we do have a few patients uh, who've presented with heart failure uh, and atrial fibrillation where we've, we've successfully ablated. Uh, and I can think of one fellow who has a BMI of 50, which is quite quite high, lots of extra weight, uh, who's uh, 10 years out from successful AFib ablation. And uh, uh, but when we met, he was dying of congestive heart failure and uh, uh, treating the AFib uh, turned that around. Uh, a, a preference, though, is to encourage people to find lifestyles or even pursue bari bariatric surgery, depending on their weight situation. Uh, and uh, uh, because there are other benefits to uh, uh, losing the weight besides the, the rhythm control. And so in, in suitable patients, uh, uh, we'll occasionally hook them up with the bariatric surgeons and and then uh, keep working on the rhythm situation as they work on the on the weight problem. Right. I think I think what's super important about what Steve said is that there needs to be some sort of protocol. So in most of our practices, there's a preset protocol. So when a person comes with AFib, these are the four things that happen automatically. They get a sleep study, they get blood pressure tested, they're automatically referred to a dietitian. Like these are these are programs that need to be in place at centers that, that manage AFib, that at least provide a comprehensive uh, strategy to managing this. 
Well, it's really good to know. And I, I feel like we've we've touched on a lot. And I feel like this is um this this conversation could go on because there's just so much going on with um awareness and the treatments and so many advancements. And so what what I've taken away so far um is just um there are in general just your your overall health, but your overall heart health um can provide significant sort of red flags before you have your AFib red flag, you don't want to go, you don't want to go there. Um, because then that means it's been, you know, there's been other, other things going on with your heart health, but just, you know, staying in tune with blood pressure and, um, understanding your cholesterol, understanding your lifestyle and just those contributing factors, um, around diet, exercise, sleep, um, stress levels. Um, but that there are therapies and there's been a lot of advancement in that, um, and whether it's a medical management pathway or a procedural pathway that doesn't just temporarily fix the flickering light bulb, right? But that just that really can put us on a better path um, for long term, um, you know, sort of success with those therapies. But that that's not also not a straight up fix. You have to then after those procedures continue to um, improve your overall health and see these other specialists because it isn't just the, the heart, you know, that you need to take care of, you have to take care of your weight. Um, you have to make sure you're getting sleep and you're addressing all the sleep apnea. Um, and, and just really, you know, total life, you know, it's really kind of comprehensive life modification, lifestyle modification. So people with AFib at the end of the day, we, they can have long, healthy lives. Um, but that these are just critical things that they have to address. Um, if I can so, just add something to what you said. Sure. I think, you know, as, as you describe it very well, the whole process, we also don't want people to feel overwhelmed. Like, yeah. oh, my God, I have to do all these things. I mean, we have such great therapies for AFib that, that it's, it, it, it doesn't have to be as complicated as, as, as it seems. <clears throat> there are a few strategies that we can employ in terms of your overall lifestyle, but <clears throat> the treatments we have for AFib to actually fix the problem are just getting better and better. And oftentimes you hear people well, I had a friend who had an ablation and it didn't work and they had it three times and this didn't happen. And so I don't believe in it. I think, you know, some of these therapies you provide for AFib are, are so operator dependent, dependent on who's doing it, the level of experience they have, mm -hmm. the technology at that given hospital, how these patients are managed and followed, that there's a lot of variability. And the one thing that's great about our field <clears throat> is that there's been so much investment in technology because... AFib is such a booming uh, disease that so many people are affected that the technologies and therapies are just getting better to the point where it'll become less important that you that you saw Dr. Comp and you can see Dr. Joe Schmo and, and hopefully the technology will allow us to be consistent in how we do the procedure. Yeah. Uh, and, and that's where we're going in the future. And so there's a lot of positive here. Even though we diagnose your AFib and you have issues going on, there's many ways now that we can fix it much better than we could even do five years ago. Right. Well, thank you, Dr. Doshi and Dr. Compton. Um, we've we've talked a lot about AFib and treatment. Is there anything else that um, we haven't discussed that you feel like our listeners should know? Well, I, I think we should uh, maybe elaborate a little bit more on uh, the treatment for atrial fibrillation. The, this mainstay of therapy for symptomatic atrial fibrillation or uh, atrial fibrillation that's causing heart failure is catheter ablation and mm -hmm. uh, and the the current state of that procedure um, it's an invasive procedure 
uh, where we can send electrical catheters, uh, uh, typically through the, the vein in your leg, the femoral vein, up mm -hmm. into the heart, and we can go uh, into the left atrium. So we, we have to puncture a hole between the right and left atrium across the septum. And uh, once we get to the left side, we can map and electrically disconnect the arrhythmia triggers that are initiating atrial fibrillation. And that's typically, typically going to be the uh, uh, pulmonary veins and uh, uh, often uh, there could be other tissues in the left atrium that uh, can be uh, arrhythmia triggers, but uh, we can electrically disconnect those triggers while preserving observing as much muscle, uh, pumping muscle as we can. And uh, the uh, uh, when you consider that, that not long ago in living memory, atrial fibrillation was an incurable mystery. Uh, mm -hmm. And now uh, we're seeing uh, uh, one-year success rates with, for paroxysmal fibrillation in excess of 85%. Um, it, it's been a pretty exciting time. And, and I think the, the tools will only improve. But the, the, the current uh, uh, atrial fibrillation ablation offered in those centers uh, will, is a fairly uh, brief procedure uh, compared to what we used to do. Um, and so a typical ablation is uh, under two hours and uh, mm -hmm. uh, patients typically are heading home the same day. And uh, most of our patients are back to normal activity within one or two days. So uh, it's nice to have that in your back pocket if, you, if you're starting to wrestle with an atrial fibrillation problem. Um, and uh, uh, it, it's been an exciting thing to be able to fix that. I think, I think um, you know, we talk about being able to fix the atrial fib, but we've, we've kind of missed a whole nother chapter of atrial. A lot of patients don't feel it. They're older and that may not need to be done, but a lot of patients struggle with protecting themselves from stroke. And mm -hmm. that is that, you know, the standard therapy is to use blood thinners, which work very well. But there are a lot of patients who fall, who bleed, uh, who just aren't able to take the blood thinners. And now we have an FDA approved, and we've had this now for over six years, an FDA approved strategy that involves a procedure called left atrial appendage closure. <clears throat> the left atrial appendage is a pouch in the heart, kind of like the appendix in the gut. We don't use mm -hmm. it. It just causes problems and that's where the blood clots form. And by doing this procedure called appendage closure and the first device that was approved is called a watchman. Uh, but the concept is we're closing this pouch or appendage and it's a single, you know, one day, 30 minute to an hour procedure. Patients mostly go home the same day now. After that procedure, patients are eventually able to stop taking blood thinners. So that's been one of the largest growth uh, aspects in AFib in our practice is the number of patients that are able to stop taking their blood thinners or patients who weren't compliant or couldn't afford $400, $500 a month for their blood mm -hmm. thinners are now able to get this procedure. And, and we're doing hundreds and hundreds a year now. Uh, and every hospital, the volume is growing um, to uh, protect people from the real main danger from AFib, which is stroke. Right. The other things can happen, but stroke affects everyone including every patient with AFib. And so it's important to mention to patients out there that if you're having challenges with blood thinners or you can't afford it or you can't get it, then there is another alternative that is covered by Medicare for patients who are elderly who have AFib. That's a, a single procedure that can uh, you know, reduce the risk of stroke. Right. 
I, yes. And I, I feel like there, this is really probably, um, the interventions and the procedures are a dedicated topic because I've had the privilege of actually seeing this. So I really wish our listeners could actually see the technology um, or it, and, and what you use to actually do this procedure. So that the mapping, the 3D mapping, and and you talked about uh, the left atrial appendage procedure, um, which is amazing because this isn't like, you're, you're going in through a, 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 a basically a small hole right in, in the femoral artery and getting up in there and you're and it and it's it doesn't take very long most patients you know may not even have to stay in the hospital you know after to recover this is incredible i think advancements in how we take care of um you know really critical diagnoses but um just really grateful to the specialty especially within electrophysiology on how we can make this an, an achievable um you know intervention for patients um, it doesn't really, you know, demand th these long recovery periods and it makes them feel better. They're effective. And I feel like, I definitely feel like we've come such a long, long way. Um, one, in just the awareness of it, having, um, you know, paths that are evidence-based and procedures that really don't require us to have to take a lot of time away from, from either from work or family, but that just get us back on our feet and, and, and doing the things we love and being with our family. So, um, I really appreciate um, the, the conversation today with, with both of you and, and taking the time. So again, thank you um, for sharing your expertise and your stories um, and, uh, and around AFib. So appreciate it. Thank you for joining us today on this important topic on Heart Matters. We look forward to continuing the important conversation on heart health and wellness with more experts from Providence in future episodes. Make sure you listen to all of our shows on Dash Radio under Future of Health Radio or your favorite podcast platform and follow us on social media. We can be found on Twitter and Facebook at Providence and on Instagram under Providence Health Systems. To learn more about our missions, programs, and services, go to Providence.org. And for more information on Boston Scientific, visit BostonScientific.com. And please remember, the information provided during this program is for educational purposes only. You should always consult your healthcare provider if you have any questions regarding a medical condition or treatment. Thanks for listening. And remember, at Providence, we see the life in you. Thank you.